Romans chapter 7, continuing on through this amazing letter, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Hallelujah, Father. Thank you. We praise you. What a glorious word you have given us just for this morning. It's amazing to me, Father. We can get, I can get so excited about six verses out of 66 books. And you do it over and over and over. You have magnified your word according to all your name. And we see why. And we thank you for the wonderful truth here. But I pray, Father, as often we do, that you will move this truth from the knowledge of our heads into the emotion of our hearts. Into the deep place of our spirit. May we receive what you have for us this morning. We ask your Holy Spirit to work a supernatural work in us so we can hear words of God and not words of man. And be moved and motivated and touched, Father, by what you have to say. Thank you for your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, i got to tell you, my wife is so blessed. <laughs> On July 26th, 2016, she will have been married 30 glorious years to me. (laughs) The perfect man, really. I mean, when her thinking's a little off, I'm always here to set her straight. I'm the sure man. I am wise and reliable. Mr. Wright, really, if you think about it, uh, and Mr. Wright always makes her happy, (laughs) and I'm absolutely pure, helping her to see more clearly. I'm clean, she never has to pick up after me. And hey, it's, it's, it's all true. She knows I am a righteous dude, and oh, did I mention that I'm inherently sweet? She couldn't find any sweeter honey in all the world. My wife, so blessed. Now, before any of you get too violently ill, what I just described to you was not myself, but line by line, I just described to you the law. The law. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise (laughs) the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord, or the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. You never have to pick up after it. Enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them there is great reward. Oh, that I could be such a husband. To be a man like that. To be that level of perfection for my wife. And I'm not, but I can tell you this much. She's stuck with me. (laughs) This is it, man. I'm not going anywhere. Till death do us part. But not because of the legality of it. I've got the piece of paper. I've yet to pull it out. I may someday. I signed the contract. But you know what? I love her. I just love her. And she loves me. I know that's remarkable. Trust me, I know it every day. Most of you husbands are going, oh, I know. (laughs) And coming into Romans chapter 7, I am reminded of a similar truth. Please understand this. Please get this. Christianity is not a binding legal contract Christianity is a blessed love relationship. It's not legal. It's love. That's what it's all about. It's it's being loved by Jesus. It's loving Him in return. It's loving other people because He does, and if He does, He must be right. It's all about the love. And it's turning around and loving not only His people, but the world with the gospel of grace And love. Christianity is not a binding legal contract. It is a blessed love relationship. This is good timing for us because we've been already moving through a lot of doctrine in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. A lot of doctrine of of, of condemnation and salvation. Of justification and sanctification. And we're going to get to glorification. There's a lot of cations, you know, in Romans. There's a lot of stuff that if you are a student, if you're a theologian, if you're a studier, you you love this stuff. You can dig into this stuff. You can feed on it. It's a lot of meat. If you're a steak and potatoes follower of Jesus, this is your book. And the truths here are magnificent, but it's a lot of doctrine. It's awesome doctrine. When I say the word doctrine, do you hear, oh, shut down. Or do you hear truth? Because doctrine, again, is simply teaching. There's a lot of teaching in this book. It's not as much of the stories. You know, I'm kind of a story guy. That's why I love the Gospels. Because you can just sit in the Gospels and you can be in the Galilee with Jesus. Or actually with Peter. He was actually in the Galilee. You know, you can be on the hills of Judea walking with the Lord. You can sense that relationship, but you get into a book like Romans and you can start to go, oh yeah, checklist, got this, got that. Here's what we do with this. Here's how I'm supposed to believe about that. And the next thing you know, you're spending a lot of time in the soul. A lot of time in your head. And that's not a bad thing. It's a lot of information to take in. But don't forget to take this personally. 
Because we're not talking about a legal contract. We're talking about a love relationship. Paul's explaining it for us. He is laying it out in the clearest possible terms. But it's a love relationship. Now in Romans chapter 6, Paul began explaining sanctification. Chapter 6 and 7, he goes over the entire process of sanctification. How it works, what Jesus does, what is our part in it. It is that process, as we talked about last week, that disarms the power of sin in our lives. And Wednesday night we talked about how it not only disarms just sin generically, it disarms continual sin, that is lifestyle sin. Sin that I lived in before no longer has power over me. And it also disarms intermittent or incidental sin. That's the sin that I just commit on occasion. Sometimes unwittingly. Sanctification works on both. If if you go back just for a moment to Romans chapter 6, let me point this out to you before we get back into the love, although this is all about love. Verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Are Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And that's continual sin. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and continue in a lifestyle sin. Eventually, it just doesn't work. You're going to go one way or the other. You're either just going to give up on Jesus and go back to the lifestyle sin, or the lifestyle sin, the continual sin, will break. And you will walk away from it because you can't follow Jesus and live in that pattern of practicing sin. Can't do it. But he goes on further down in verse 15 and says, What then? His second question of chapter 6, Shall we sin... Because we are not under law but under grace. May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And that's it. Paul nails the key to both disarming continuation sin and intermittent sin. All sin is dealt with by the condition of sanctification and the effect of sanctification. By the way, that's just marvelous. I don't know if anywhere else you can get that. The condition of sanctification. I am sanctified. The effect of sanctification. I am being sanctified. At the same time, God already declared me justified, declares me righteous, says you are among the hagiosmos, the sanctified ones. And I'm sanctifying you. How does that work? Only supernaturally. Only in the hands of a loving God. And the key is this. Again, we talked about this Wednesday, but we all need to hear this. The Christian has a new master. Which is why I don't obey lifestyle sin, and it's why I kick out even intermittent sin. Even when I sin on occasion, why it's so abhorrent to me. Why the more I grow in Christ, the more just every time I blow it, every time I sin, every time I fail, the more I hate that stuff. Because sanctification is working in me. I have a new master. Romans 6.14 says, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And it's a whole new ball game. When you come to Jesus, you're no longer battling law. Now you live in grace. And it's from the position of grace we have this lordship over us, this new master. Now what happens in chapter 7 
is Paul continues this relational, revelational teaching that is also revolutionary. You see, and this is what he wants us to understand, what the Spirit, I think, would say to us this morning. At the cross, something else happened to me as a Christian. Not only did I die with Christ to sin, but I also died to the law. I died to sin, and now Paul says, I died to the law. Walk this through with me. Verse 1, he says, Do you not know, brethren? For I am speaking to those who know the law. That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. As long as you live... You're under law. Right? We all are. Today, in America, we are under certain prescribed laws. They're growing. They continue to be signed by executive order. More and more laws. And we are living under them. As long as we're alive, we are under the law. But but if that's the case, then I ask the question, how is it that Paul can say in another place, 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, he says a second time, but I will not be mastered by anything. He says in 1 Corinthians 10.23, and this is radical stuff. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And he says it a fourth time. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. What are you saying, Paul? He's saying there's no law that has any hold over me. I can do whatever I want. All things are lawful. He rightly says this because Paul died with Christ, as with any believer, he died not only to sin, but he died to the law. So all things are lawful. It's crazy. When Paul first started writing this stuff down, when he began going synagogue to synagogue throughout Asia, talking about these things, do you see why people were freaking out? This was unlike anything they had ever heard before. Jew or Gentile, because both were under the law. Paul comes along and says, hey, I got something to tell you. The law, and you might want to jot this down, has no jurisdiction. The law no longer has jurisdiction. Good news, he declared. Once you've died, you're no longer under the law. You know what that means? When you die, you don't have to worry about April 15th. You no longer pay taxes. When you die, you don't have to go and renew your driver's license. I had to do this in Southern California. It's time for my renewal. We had moved back to the state. We had been living in Virginia for a while, moved back to California, and we were down there. So I went to get my driver's license, and they wanted me to take the test. I'm like, I've been driving for like, I don't know, 150 years. I got this. So I took the written test and I failed it. Went back and she said, well, you can take it again for 10 bucks right now or you can go home and study. And I'm like, I got this. How many times can I take it? Three times. So I took it the second time and I failed it. Well, now I had something to prove. So I took it the third time and I failed it. And I got to, at about 35 years of age, I guess we're early 30s, 30, 31 years of age, I had to take the driving test again. (laughs) Under law. And if I had only died 
<laughs> I wouldn't have been under that law. You know, after you die, you're not required to buy health insurance. It's kind of an ironic thought, actually. Now, in some states, apparently, you can still vote. But I don't know how that, you know, applies. <laughs> you die to law. You are no longer under law, right? I mean, doesn't that make perfect sense? And by the way, someone might say, well, I was never under the old Jewish law anyway. Paul's not just talking about that. He is writing to the church at Rome. And when he writes to them... Jews and Gentiles, all of whom were under Roman law. It's not just the law. We tend to think the law, and we go straight to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, Torah. But he's writing to Gentiles too, and he's saying, hey, if you die, you're no longer under the law. Well, it's true. The word law is nomos in the Greek, and it does parallel the word Torah. It's used throughout the New Testament many different times, nomos. But nomos literally means any rules or regulations, civic or religious. So it doesn't have to be Jewish law alone. This teaching, my friends, applies to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. Any rule, any regulation, any procedure, any policy that holds authority or jurisdiction over me, which is why, by the way, our statement of belief for the bridge and our policy manuals are not binding. The Word of God is binding. The Word of God is true. Our policies are just kind of to give us direction and help us figure out things and give us a place to go if we're not sure how to handle something. Jurisdiction by the way, is an interesting word because law no longer holds jurisdiction over me if, in fact, I have died. And the word jurisdiction is curio. The root word is curios, which is Lord. Curio is lordship. The law has no lordship over me. Grace has superabounded. And because grace has superabounded... Through death to sin and now death to the law, the law no longer has authority. It no longer has lordship because I have changed masters. I was under the master of sin. Then, of course, the master of the law was added and the sin just increased. Well, I've died to both. And now now I have changed masters and I serve one Lord. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. The law is not my master. And no law is. Kind of sounds like anarchy. It's not. It's a right perspective. It's a correct view when you come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't serve the law. Now, as an American citizen, I obey the law because I serve the Lord. And He asked me to. Romans 13, verse 1, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And I might add, sometimes they're His desire for us, and sometimes He gives us our desire for us. Hence some of our recent presidencies, and you can pick whichever one you didn't like. 
He says, Romans 13, 2, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, we're going to get into that in a few weeks. Which is perfect timing as this whole, uh, you know, voting season heats up. We're going to talk about it. So what do we do with the law and the governing authorities? But understand... The only exception to lawful obedience is when the law, any law, subverts the Lord. In that case, I will follow the Lord without question. If the law tells me something that is opposed to the Lord, I'm not under the law. I am under the Lord. And I keep the law right now because the Lord has asked me to, unless the Lord asked me, or the law asked me to do something the Lord doesn't want me to, then I must obey Him. Because there's one Lord and I serve Him, and I have a new master, and my master is not sin, and my master is not the law. My master is Jesus Christ. Scripture's clear about this. Genesis 49, verse 10, old Jacob said, To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. All people. I died to the law, but I live to God. Why? Because Christianity is not a legal contract. It is a love relationship. Isn't that wonderful? How freeing. As you speed your way home today. No, don't do that. <laughs> Now, speaking of law, it's not surprising since Christianity is a love relationship that Paul uses marriage as his prime example. Look at verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband. Guys, stop elbowing your wives. Because she'll add, while he's living. But if her husband dies, uh huh, uh huh, she is released from the law concerning her husband. Question Was marriage instituted in the law of Moses or before? Way before. It is not something of the law of Moses, it is of the law of God for all people. And Jesus clearly communicated that. All the way back to the beginning, Jesus said the God-given ordinance of marriage goes back to Adam and Eve. He quotes this. This is Matthew 19, verse 4. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Not because she burned the toast. Okay, I added that. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Do you know that's why divorce happens in the world today? That's the issue. It's the hardness of heart. Either of one or of the other or of both. But it's always the hardness of heart when a relationship cannot be put back together. It's because the heart is hardened to it. Let me just say to you if you're struggling in a marriage situation right now, soften your heart. 
One of the best things you can be praying is the Lord would soften your heart toward your spouse, no matter what he or she has done. Because it's a hard heart that breaks the marriage. And that's Jesus' recommendation. That's His statement. It's because of your hardness of heart that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. (coughs) Jesus was clear. But I'll tell you something. If a woman never marries... She's not lawfully bound in that union. So there's one way to deal with it. Just don't get married. (laughs) The apostles at one point said, who can do that? And Jesus said, well, I know that's tough for some of you guys. Paul in another place would say, get married just so you don't burn. (laughs) But the reality here is, if you're not married, you're not bound. And if you are married and a death occurs, you are no longer bound. Now, one of our sisters might say, I don't like the sound of that word bound. Sounds more like a legal indictment than love. Well, there is an indictment related to marriage. You know that? There's a curse on it. The curse goes back to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve. When God said to the woman, Genesis 3.16, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet, and listen to this, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It's a curse. That is not the way it's supposed to be, guys. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It is a curse, and the curse is very clear. Your desire will be for your husband, and the language is clear on that. Your desire will be to be over your husband. But he will rule over you. Well, there's the conflict right there. That's the conflict of marriage going all the way back to the beginning. The man now is ruler, and the wife wants to be ruler, and the two go head to head. Because of sin... Marriage, which should be, which is supposed to be, like Christianity, a love relationship. In fact, marriage is supposed to be a picture of the love relationship between Christ and His church. Often it becomes a legal battle of control and authority, at least until death do you part. Can't live with them, can't shoot them. And, and Paul says, you can't just go off with another guy. That's not an option either. What are you talking about, Rick? I'm not even talking about marriage here. And neither is Paul. We're talking about the greater love relationship of which marriage is simply a picture. We're talking about deeper things. And if the first husband dies, the woman is free. Because the law no longer has, as I said, number one, jurisdiction. The law no longer has jurisdiction. The woman's free. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. So that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So if the first husband dies, secondly, note this, the law no longer has dominion. It doesn't have legal jurisdiction, and it no longer has dominion. Authority. But as long as he lives, 
You're stuck with him. The toilet paper will never be on the roll correctly. The toothpaste will always be squeezed from the wrong end. The lid will be up. The communication will be down. Listen, any marriage, any marriage that is for the sake of the legality instead of love is going to be hard. Any marriage where one or the other stays in because, well, we're legally bound, that attitude is just going to produce hard hearts and hardship. But a marriage that is based on godly love, that is a different thing altogether. Now, someone might say to me, and people have said to me before, what if I've fallen out of love? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I I kid you not. Well, we just don't love each other anymore. Well, then start loving each other. Well, you don't understand. We fell out of love. What was it like falling out of a tree? What are you talking about? I fell out of love. No such thing. It is a lie of culture to say that you have fallen out of love. You don't fall out of love. You choose to love or not to love. You choose it. You decide to love or not to love. God did that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He chose to do that. Well, how do you know He chose to do that? Because He did it before I was born. God so loved the world before I could show whether or not I was even worthy of that love. Same with all of us in the auditorium this morning. He did this before we proved ourselves worthy. He chose to love. That's love. It's a choice that we make. It's not how we feel. I understand that's tough. I understand it's hard, especially when a marriage is on rocky ground. So listen. A little marital advice. We're not talking about marriage this morning, but I'm going to give a little marital advice anyway. The best hope for any marriage is when both husband and wife die to sin and die to the law. Because if you die to the law, the old curse, listen, is lifted. The curse that says, ladies, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you, it's gone in Christ Jesus. It no longer applies. How do you know that? Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 tells us there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. And in a relationship that is Jesus-based, where husband submits himself to his wife and wife submits herself to her husband and both parties submit to the marital relationship for the sake of Jesus, out of the love relationship we have with him, that marriage is going to get healthy. Is going to grow strong. But battle with sin and the law, and you will always have hardship in the marital relationship. I can choose to love because God chose to love a wretched sinner man like me. And the motivation I have to love my wife, and she's a lovely woman. She's tenacious. I, I, I call her Tenacious C. That's my new name for Cheryl. Tenacious C, because she's just, she's remarkable to me. But I choose to love her. I have the ability to love her because I have the perfect example right before me, and that is the love that God has for me through Jesus Christ. What a remarkable love relationship. 
that I get to walk in. Now again, Paul is using marriage as a parabolic picture of a greater truth. The marriage isn't the point here. It's just the example. So get this. Understand what he's talking about. When he talks about the married woman and she's bound to her husband, but if he dies, then she's free to be joined to another man. Let's, let's nail this down. What are we talking about here? The wife, the woman, portrays the believer in Christ. The woman portrays the believer in Christ. What about the first husband? Okay, this is tricky. Some have said, well, it's the law. Can't be. The first husband is not the law. Why? Because the law hasn't died. Law is still alive and kicking. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The law is still kicking. So, the law can't be the first husband because he's talking about a death here. And the law is still alive. Besides, we already established... That at least God's law is absolutely perfect in every way. And Jesus underscored that. Matthew 5.19 Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus lays out that the law is alive and the law is perfect. The law is not the issue. In fact, you could call the law Mr. Right. Mr. Right. You know what the only real problem is with Mr. Right, Mr. Perfecto? Is that the wife begins to pale in comparison to him. Because the wife is not perfect. Ladies, you, you don't, unmarried young women, you don't want to meet Mr. Perfect. Because you will start to look pretty bad over time. If he is always perfect, when you start to mess up, it's just going to become as clear as day. You do not want to meet and marry Mr. Perfect. Besides, he doesn't exist. But the perfect law... The perfect law, the law of the Lord, Psalm 19.7, again, is perfect. The law didn't die. The perfect law didn't die. But something happened to legally sever my relationship with Mr. Wright, with the law. You see, the wife, the woman in this is the believer in Christ. The first husband, get this, it's so significant. The first husband is the old man. It's the old Man, Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Understand that. The law didn't die. The old man died. And when the old man died to the law, the law no, no, no longer had jurisdiction over you. The old Jew's gone. The old Jew is dead. And verse seven of Romans, verse four of Romans seven says, "Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Who died to the law? You did. I did. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to Him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God." So you understand. The wife portrays the believer in Christ. 
The first husband is the old man, the old woman, the one that died off, the one that died to sin and died to the law. That was who you used to be. Say goodbye to the old man. And the new husband portrays Jesus Christ Himself. You die to the law that you might live with Christ, be joined to Christ, and the law now becomes, well, we sang it this morning, I love your law. I love the law. It's no longer this heavy, ponderous, burdensome thing. Now it's the pure words of God. I'm in a love relationship with Jesus, therefore the law no longer has jurisdiction over me, it no longer has dominion, because I am now joined to Jesus. And understand this, it cannot be law and Jesus. And yet how many Christians try to live that way? We try to live one foot in the law and one foot in the relationship with Jesus. Listen, Paul gets very violent with his language here. Verse 4 is truly a graphic, violent statement. Listen to it again. Therefore, my brethren, since you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. That doesn't mean by going to church, the law just kind of passes away. The language is clear. Made to die is literally put to death. Executed. Body of Christ here is not the plural body of Christ. It is the singular, literal body of Jesus. A Greek scholar by the name of Alfred translates it this way. You were slain to the law by means of the crucified body of Christ. That's how definite this killing was. Your old person, your old man, your old woman, the one you used to be, was put to death by means of the crucified body of Christ. He says this, Alfred says, the more violent word is used for death to recall the violent death of Jesus, in which, after the manner of which, believers have been put to death, to the law, and to sin. It is a graphic illustration When Paul says the old self died with Christ, he already said it about sin back in chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so we would no longer be slaves to sin. But now Paul says, and it counts with the law too. You died to sin, you died to the law. The old man, the old woman, put to death, slain, exterminated. Six feet under. With Jesus. Not only to the desire of sin, but to the demand of the law. But when Jesus raised again, I was raised a new man. The old man died. The law no longer has jurisdiction. The law no longer has dominion over me. And so we sing, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. That's a love relationship. It's not a legal contract. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.56, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But, since I died to the law, number three, the law which no longer has 
jurisdiction over me, no longer has dominion over me, the law no longer breeds temptation. Breeds temptation. Think about this. Because the old man has been put down, he had to be, so that I could be free to be joined to another. So that in verse 4 it tells us, I can begin now bearing fruit for God. More on that in just a second. And because all the law makes me want to do is cheat. The law came in so the transgression would increase. Romans 5.20 Whatever you do right now, in this moment, sitting in your seat, do not, I repeat, do not think of a fresh hot chocolate donut. I know what you're thinking, Larry. I can see... Larry started licking his lips. How can I not? I read that and already my mind's there. Chocolate dripping off and the steam coming out. It's beautiful. Don't do it! And the second we say don't do it, what does your flesh do? Your flesh does it. Your flesh wants to do it. The moment the law comes out, I confess to you, When Obamacare passed, I went, I'm not buying health insurance anymore. That was my first thought. Well, I'm just not going to do it. Why? Is it because Obamacare is so bad? We're not going to debate that right now. It's because my flesh says, no. Enough of this. The law increases temptation. Verse 5. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. My sinful passions, my sin nature is aroused by law. So if I'm a Christian and I'm in this relationship with Jesus, but I'm still trying to keep a foot in the law, I'm still trying to live under the law, the enticement of sin remains strong in my life. I still want to sin. I love Jesus, but man, I still want to do stuff I shouldn't ought to be doing. I'm not focused on the relationship. I'm focused on the religion. I'm living in the law. And the law entices that. It brings me out of that. Or it brings that out of me. And you might say, why does it work that way? I thought the law was perfect. It is. 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul says, We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the holy and profane. Wait a minute. When I come into a relationship with Christ, I am no longer ungodly. I am no longer the sinner, the unholy, the profane. I am the hagiosmos, sanctified. I'm the Hagias, the Saint, Holy One of God. I've I've come out of that. This is why every nation in the history of the world has had to function by law. Because man is naturally sinful. So we have to establish boundaries to keep us from doing those things. But once those boundaries are up, all we want to do is jump over them. The law was added so the sin would increase. We must have law. The law is not the problem. G.K. Chesterton, 19th century theologian, humorist, writer for the London Daily Observer, was once asked by a woman, 
if he might write a series of articles explaining what was wrong with the world. His classic response was this, Madam, I will tell you what is wrong with the world in two words. I am. I am. And we could all look in the mirror and say the exact same thing. Why is there sin in the world? Because we're in the world. And you raise up law and it doesn't work because the sin nature controverts the law. So again, it is not the law that needs dying. It's the old man. The old man needs to die to the law. But when I die to the old man, I become lawfully free, get this, lawfully free to be wed, well, at least joined in union with Jesus. Spiritually betrothed to Jesus when I am born again. And in this new grace relationship, we immediately begin to experience a remarkable contrast. Get this. Verse 4, he said that we are joined to him who was raised from the dead. Right? That's Jesus. So that, at the end of verse 4, it says, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Contrast that with what he says at the end of verse 5. That the sinful passions were roused by the law and were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Here's the contrast. The law arouses dead fruit. The love relationship produces godly fruit. Now, I don't know about you, but when I pull out the apple drawer in our refrigerator, I want to see godly fruit. I want nice, big, fresh, honey crisp apples. And they don't last long. You know, it's, it's October, November. You get to about December and the whole good crop of the honey. Oh, they're still selling them in the store, but bite into them and they're like wax now. Trust me, I've become a connoisseur of apples. But we have had the occasion where I've opened up that drawer and pulled out a big, beautiful apple. Set it on the counter. Got out the knife. Slice. Open it up. And the whole inside is brown and rotted. Dead fruit. And so I slice up some cheese, put it on a plate, and I just enjoy it. No, it goes straight to the trash. Dead fruit. I don't want dead fruit. I'm tired of dead fruit. Under law, under law, all I do is produce dead fruit. Under law, I've got a list of things that have to be done. Kind of a honeydew list. You know what I'm talking about? And it sits there like a rotten melon. Honeydew. Melon, you know. Because the commandments are burdensome. The commandments are hard. The commandments are to do's. But the love relationship under grace makes the commandments sweet. Makes the commandments themselves taste good. When my heart is not right with my wife and she leaves me a list of things to be done, I do them grudgingly. Vacuum them, living, get it done, unplug, put that away. What else is on the list? Oh, okay, got to unclog the drain. Well, that's a lot of fun, pulling that muck out of there. Love that. When my heart's not right, when I'm thinking lists. But when I'm thinking love, all that stuff, I enjoy it. I may be crazy. Yesterday, I pulled out, I'm not even going to describe it, but I, I unclogged a drain. Cheryl asked me to. Do you know what? 
I was in a really good place with Cheryl, you know, just our relationship and, and having fun yesterday. And, and when she asked me to do that, oh yeah, I got it. And I, I went and did it and I enjoyed it. Completely different mentality when I do it because of the love relationship rather than because of the honey-do list. The law. i got to keep the law. Man, if you're trying to keep the law, it will never be enjoyable for you. It'll just be hard, it'll be frustrating, and it'll be rotten. It's dead fruit. But Jesus said, John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I finally, after years and years of reading that, finally understood what he was saying. He wasn't saying, you will prove you love me by finishing this list. No. He said, if you love me, the commandments are going to flow naturally. You're just going to keep them. If you love me, and I say, hey, do you mind vacuuming the living room? I got it, Lord, and I'm in there enjoying it and singing worship songs, you know. Because it's a love thing. It's the natural born fruit of a, relo- a love relationship. The non-Christian doesn't understand this. I don't go to church because I have to. I'm paid to. No, I, I don't do that. You know, what I, what I can tell you very honestly, in almost 13 years of our fellowship here, I have never had a Sunday I didn't want to be here. I have never had a one that I wished I was somewhere else. Honestly, it's, it's a phenomenon with me because pretty much every Sunday of ministry prior to that, I had to get out. Honey, it's time to go to church. I don't want to go to church. You're the pastor. I don't want to go to church. You know? <laughs> and you know, it's because of the love relationship. Yes, the love we have for each other in this place. Absolutely. But I loved other people in other churches. I just didn't get grace. Like God began to reveal grace to me just prior to us coming together as a fellowship. I didn't understand grace. But now in grace, I don't go to church because I have to. I don't study the Bible as a discipline. I study it out of pure joy. I know it sounds weird, but I just love it. Give me eight to ten hours just wide open just to sit in a passage and pray and be with Jesus. And it can be any passage. Because I love Him. Because it's a love relationship. I don't hold the Christian standards to fake righteousness. Mm -mm. I want to be righteous because He calls me to sanctification. It's a total paradigm shift. And the godly fruit that Paul is talking about here is quite specifically our behavior. It's what we do for love. The phrase bear fruit, carpo foreo. It's used eight times in the New Testament. And it literally means to produce crops or to bring about results by our behavior. It doesn't have to do with birthing children, by the way. And I know, you know, we've been following the marriage relationship here. So some will say, oh, so you're going to bear fruit for God. Well, that means that you're going to increase with other believers. You're going to actually birth people. And that's not what he's talking about. He's just talking about my everyday behavior. How suddenly the fruit of my life becomes godly rather than death. The parallel verses, let me give these to you real quickly. Uh, four of them are in the Gospels. Matthew 13, 23, along with Mark 4, 20, Mark 4, 28, and Luke 8, 15. And it's all the same story. Jesus says the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit. Carpo foreo. He brings forth 
Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And again, that's not at that point talking about more people, more believers. It's just talking about more of what comes out of your life for Jesus. The fruit that you bear, the things that you do are more and more godly rather than death. In this new relationship, good things, they start to sprout. And again, not because we have to, but because we want to. Now Paul uses the word bear fruit twice here in Romans chapter 7. And finally, the last two times that it's used are in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Where he says in Colossians 1 verse 5, the gospel is constantly bearing fruit. And it's increasing. Even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul says, we pray, Colossians 1.10, that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Understand, I'm big on evangelism. And I think every one of us has been called to share the gospel with our non-believing family and friends. Absolutely. But the fruit that's being talked about here is a fruit of a sanctified life. Suddenly, rather than harsh words toward my children, I have soft and kind words. That is the fruit he's talking about. Suddenly, in dealing with my co-workers, I become more of a servant. That's good fruit. That's what he's talking about. It's a sanctified life that now begins to produce good fruit rather than dead fruit. Dead fruit, grumpiness. You know, dead fruit, self-service, selfishness, self-focus. That stuff just dies off. But the good fruit here that he's talking about is beautiful. Love produces godly fruit. Law, well that just produces stink berries. Stink berries? Read Isaiah 5 sometime. The whole parable Isaiah gives of the vineyard of the Lord and he says I called you to produce good fruit and you produce stink berries and that's the word in the Hebrew I love the word the little stink berry now see if I use that with my children that's bad fruit verse 6 but now we have been released don't you love the word release you're released you're released not yet don't go anywhere But it's a great word. We have been, he says, released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. By the way, not the law, but the old person. That's what bound you to the law. So that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And that's the second contrast here. It's not just between dead fruit and godly fruit, but the, the final contrast, the law serves the oldness of the letter. The love relationship serves in the newness of the Spirit. In another place, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3.6, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If you try to live by the law, Well, again, Rick, I'm a Christian. I'm not a Jew. Yeah, but there are a lot of Christians who live by legalistic, lawful Christianity. Think that by holding this standard, when the day comes and we stand before God, judgment day, I can then show all the good things I've done. The problem is the entire yard is filled with stink berries I don't even see. I'm not even aware of. But they're all there. For those who are trying to live by the law, 
But in Jesus, in this love relationship, I live in a vibrant, new, fresh, constantly refreshed relationship because Christianity is not a legal contract. It is a love relationship. One last thing here. You want a mind blower? This just I, I sat and just literally pondered this for about an hour trying to work it out. On the cross, when Jesus died, you know He became sin. He became sin, took on sin. The perfect man became sin, right? Do you know that at the same moment that Jesus became sin, He also contained the perfect law? That in that moment, mystically, supernaturally, at the cross, the perfect law came face to face with my sin in Jesus at the same time. And that law judged all of that sin. That perfect, beautiful law of God judged that sin and Jesus died. But when He rose, guess what was left? Just the perfect man. All the old death of the law rotting in the tomb. But the perfect man rose to life. Jesus embodied the law. It's been said that the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Jesus. And I won't go all into that, but it's beautiful. It's remarkable to compare the Ark of the Covenant to Jesus Christ. But the Ark contained the perfect law. In the same way Jesus contained the law, embodied it, and sin and law came face to face on the cross, His death for my life. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. He fulfilled it. He kept it perfectly. You see, because Jesus is Mr. Right. He's the one. He died to make me right so I could be spiritually joined to Him in that blessed betrothal. Betrothal? Yeah. I love the word betrothal. I love the concept in Jewish mentality. A betrothal is more than an engagement. It has the same legal connotation of marriage, but it's not quite a marriage because the consummation has not happened yet. It's a betrothal. Right now, you and I, we are betrothed to Jesus. We are the bride of Christ because the wedding's coming. The wedding's coming. We are as good as married, betrothed. But the consummation of that, Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, we might say the godly fruit. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. The Father, you have drawn us now into this remarkable betrothal. Where the law has no jurisdiction. Father, where the law has no dominion and the law has no temptation for me. Because I am in Christ Jesus. Father, the invitation is huge. Some this morning need to hear this. It is time to finally die to the law. 
Father, some have died to sin, believing and accepting Jesus as Lord, but are still clinging to the law. We need to die to the law. Time to be free in Christ Jesus. Lord, make us free. Help us to not fear going beyond the boundaries of the law into the great wide open grace of our Father. Bless us with this understanding. We thank You for the words of Paul inspired by the Spirit. We pray now, inspire us, O Father, to enter into that love relationship with You. In Jesus' name, Amen.